Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles, Revelation chapter 17. If you were here before um, worship, then you heard me reading uh, Revelation chapter 17. Uh, it deals with the destruction of spiritual Babylon. Babylon excuse me. And uh, what's interesting, you know, numbers are very significant in the book of Revelation. And I don't, uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. But it's interesting that the word Babylon is mentioned only six times in the book of Revelation. Um, you know, the Bible, in a sense, could be called uh, a tale of two cities. Um, in the sense that uh, there's Jerusalem throughout the Bible, and it's emblematic of God's city. And uh, Babylon is the next city that's mentioned. It's emblematic of man's city. Um, Babylon is mentioned 274 times in the Bible. No other city even comes close to being mentioned as many times as Babylon. Um, The only exception is Jerusalem, which is... Uh, mentioned 767 times in the Bible. So Babylon is very prominent in scriptures. And like I said, the Bible is really a tale of two cities, uh, Jerusalem and Babylon. Well, Babylon had its uh, start as the city. It wasn't called Babylon originally. It was Babel, the city of Babel. It eventually uh, became uh, Babylon. Later on, it would become a world empire. And uh, although the city of Babylon and of course the empire no longer exists, it was never destroyed as the Bible prophesied it would be. So when we start talking about the destruction of Babylon, and I believe, like I'll mention it later on, but I believe that there will be a literal city of Babylon during the tribulation, that, that pro, the prophecies regarding the destruction of Babylon will be uh, fulfilled during that time. Well, spiritually and commercially, Babylon has continued down through the ages, even though the city itself is no longer in existence, spiritual Babylon and commercial Babylon has always been with us. Um, it's taken on different forms uh, different, through different governments, different institutions, and its headquarters has moved uh, to different capitals over time. But I want to let you know it is still with us today. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe Babylon will be a literal city uh, that'll that'll exist during the tribulation. And so chapter 17 and chapter 18 deal with the final destruction of Babylon, man's city. Chapter 17 we're looking at this morning, of course, is the destruction of religious or spiritual Babylon. Next week we'll look at chapter 18, which is the destruction of commercial or material Babylon. But to understand both of these chapters, 17 and 18, we need to understand the origin of the literal city of Babylon. And so we're going to take a little look at that this morning. So Babylon's origin, as I mentioned earlier, it was, it was founded actually as the city of Babel by a man named Nimrod. Very, very early in man's history, we find it recorded in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod was the son of Cush, He was the grandson of Ham, and he was the great-grandson of Noah. So this goes back really early in man's history. His name means rebellion. 
And if you look at the scripture about him, it says that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And uh, the word before the Lord can actually be translated rather against the Lord. Kind of like in the Lord's face or as opposed to the Lord in a bold, impudent manner without fear of the Lord. And so he's a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was a hunter of men's souls. Now you recall after Noah's flood, that God spoke to Noah and he told him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, this is what we read in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us break bricks, Make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had a city, uh, excuse me, they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come and let us build, for, build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This tower within this city of Babel was, it wasn't literally to, to, to like, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think, man, I must have been a tall tower to get all the way up to, the, to reach heaven. But really what it was, it was for the purpose of astrology, for star, studying the stars, and for worshiping the constellations. It is the birthplace of astrology and almost, if not all of the occult practices that occur today. They trace their roots back to this city of Babel and this tower. The name Babel in the Semitic language means Bab is gate and Ili or El is God. And so it really meant the gateway or the gate of God or, or we might say heaven's gate. Remember that cult a while back that they were waiting for the comet to come by? That heaven's gate was their name. And well, I don't know if they're related to that. But anyways, um, their plan, they wanted to reach heaven, not physically necessarily, but they wanted to reach heaven spiritually. And that's man's, it's, it's in the heart of every man who wants to somehow reach heaven, but not according to God's way. They wanted to do it their own way. And that's really what it boils down to. What, that's what religion is. Religion is man attempting to reach God on his own terms. That's all what religion is. We know, you know, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he came down to us. He reached down to us and, and he invites us to enter into a relationship with him. But that's the difference between religion. Religion is man's attempt to reach God on man's terms. And so Nimrod and the people around him, they said, let us make a name for ourselves. What that really is speaking about is the deification of man. Elevating man to a level of God. Let's let's make a name, a reputation for us. Let's let's we're something. We are the people, you know, type of a thing. And then he said, "Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth." That really gives a negative connotation. Being scattered, where Jesus said, or, or God said, excuse me, He said, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth." That was a blessing of God, and it was also a command of God. But they looked at it as, man, we don't want to be scattered. And so they were in direct rebellion to God's command to fill the earth. And so as we read on in Genesis 11, verse 5, it says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. 
And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language and and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the... uh, scattered them from abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. See, they intended Babel to be the gateway to God, but now it's synonymous with confusion. Even to our day, right? Uh, you, you know, somebody's talking, you go, what did that guy say? Man, I don't have an idea. He's just speaking babble. He's babbling. You know, that's where that comes from, the confusion. So here we're going to look at verse 1 of chapter 17, if you want to go ahead and look in your Bibles. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So as John sees Babylon, he sees her symbolized as a great harlot. What a contrast that is to in the Old Testament, Israel is symbolized as the wife of God. In the New Testament, the church is symbolized as the bride of Christ. In fact, Paul calls the church a chaste virgin. But here, John sees a great harlot. And throughout the Bible, spiritual idolatry is depicted as adultery. So we're seeing a picture being presented here. And Babylon as a system is spiritually idolatrous. Now, there's a temptation here among many Protestants to identify Babylon solely with the Catholic Church. And there is a lot of symbolism that seems to point to the Catholic Church, and we're going to look at some of that a little bit later. But for now, I want to point something out to you. Verse 15, it tells us, and we're going to just skip down there, it says, John is told what that the waters that the harlot is sitting on means, or what it represents, and he says, the, the harlot sitting on many waters is people's, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And so Babylon as a system is much broader in scope than merely the Catholic Church. It has a global influence over all peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And there's one thing I think we need to remember. The bride of Christ, the true believers in Jesus Christ, I believe have been raptured at this point in, the, in, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation. That would be including born-again Catholics, because, yes, there are born-again Catholics as well as born-again Protestants. All the true church at this point will have been raptured out. And so what's left is all those who are not born again, not only within the Catholic church, but within all denominations. It's just the shell, the religious shell is what will be left. And so he sees this great great harlot. It says, the kings of the earth and the heavens of the earth committed fornication or spiritual idolatry with Babylon. And throughout the ages, politicians and rulers of the earth have been in bed, so to speak, with Babylon. We'll look at that a little bit later also. 
But one thing is clear from the very beginning here. She's already been judged. Well, the spirit of Babylon, as I mentioned, has existed ever since the Tower of Babel. In Daniel's day, Babylon was embodied by the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. In John's day, Babylon was embodied by the Roman Empire under the Caesars. In our day today, Babylon is embodied by this present world system. Again, during the tribulation, I believe there's going to be a literal city, but it will also be embodied by an apostate church that's married to the world system. And both of those are judged, or all of that will be judged here. So verse 3, it says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. By the way, that the is actually not there in the, in the original language. He carried me away in the spirit into wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple scar- and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination and of the abominations of the earth. So here this harlot is decked with purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. What that speaks of is wealth, prestige, and power. So this harlot has lots of power, lots of wealth, and tremendous prestige. And yet, she's a harlot. John notices something else about this harlot. This harlot has a name written on her forehead. It says, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. When it says the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, she is the source of spiritual idolatry. And here's where it gets very interesting. Remember Nimrod, I mentioned at the very beginning, the person who founded Babel. He was married to a woman by the name of Semiramis. Semiramis claimed to give a virgin birth to a son who is in Hebrew's name is Tammuz. And this Tammuz was supposedly gored to death by a wild boar. And here it gets a little murky. Either after three days or after 40 days, Tammuz miraculously came back to life. Doesn't that sound kind of familiar to you? It sounds like the story of Jesus Christ, right? Well, this was thousands of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to explain something to you. Satan knows scriptures. And back in Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15, God declared war on Satan. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This war would be between the woman's seed and Satan's seed. Now, if you know biology, a woman does not produce seed, right? A man does. A woman produces eggs. So this is a Uh, God here is foretelling the virgin birth of Christ. And that woman that we looked at in Revelation chapter 10, the nation of Israel, she's the one that would give birth to, uh, to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, of course. Well, Satan's seed are spawned from this great harlot. And so spiritual Babylon is the mother of all 
spiritual harlotry. So what happened here? Again, Satan knows scripture. Satan created a counterfeit virgin birth thousands of years before Jesus Christ was ever born. And it's in the legend of Semiramis and Tammuz. Semiramis called herself the queen of heaven. And the Babylonian art, all the way going back to the city of Babel, shows the queen of heaven holding a baby, Tammuz. In fact, it's even mentioned in scriptures, both the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah rebuked the children of Israel for getting involved in the idolatry of the worship of queen of heaven. For example, Ezekiel 8.14. Ezekiel's given this vision here, and he says, So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. That was weeping. That was a, it, was, it was a worship of him when he died, before he was supposedly was resurrected. Jeremiah also, in, in chapter 7, verse 18, that speaks of this. The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough uh, to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. So the children of Israel were caught up in, in, at different times in their history with the worship of of Semiramis and Tammuz, the queen, Semiramis, the queen of heaven. So why is Babylon, or how, maybe is a better question, how is Babylon the mother of harlots? There's an interesting passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. A lot of people are really, you know, we don't know exactly what this means, but I want to read it to you. It says, to Eber, Eber, by the way, is kind of like the forefather of the Hebrews. That's where they get Hebrews from, Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now, many people look at that verse, and they don't know, what does it mean the earth was divided? And there are different theories. One of the theories is that... uh, you know, that's when the continental drift occurred in a short period of time. You have the, this one great continent called, I think it's called Pangaea. And at some point, all, and if you look at the, the, the globe, you know, you look at these different continents, it looks like they could actually fit together. And so it's possible, I'm not saying it is, it's possible that this verse is speaking about the time when all these portions broke off from each other. That would have been after the flood, that would have been after the Tower of Babel, according to it was reading in Genesis chapter 10. And what is fascinating, what maybe leads a little credence to this, is the Queen of Heaven and her baby is worshipped worldwide under various names. Of course, in Babylon, she's Semiramis and her son is Tammuz. In classical mythology, she's Venus and Cupid. You know that little Cupid, the little cute little baby with the, with the bow and the arrow? It's meant to hearken back to Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Not only that, but in Egypt, she's worshipped as Isis and Osiris, or also known as Horus. In India, she's worshipped as Isi and Iswara. In Asia, Cybele, or Cybele, whatever, and Diosis. In pagan Rome, Fortuna and Jupiter. In Greece, as Ceres, the great mother with the babe at her breast. Or as Irene, the goddess of peace with the boy Plutus in her arms. And in Canaan, she was Asherah and her son was Baal. 
There's more examples, but that's the ones I chose to put in here. Very fascinating. Worldwide. And that's how, this is why Babylon is the mother of all spiritual idolatry. The mother of harlots. Verse 6. What caused John to marvel? But you see, he's been given a glimpse into the future of spiritual Babylon. And in the 3rd century AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine, he issued the Edict of Toleration, and then a little bit later, the Edict of Milan. And what that was, is he, you know, he wanted to promote peace within the empire, within the Roman Empire. And so at that point, they, these edicts basically said that Christians would no longer be persecuted by Rome. In fact, Christian worship would be tolerated. That's what the Edict of Toleration was. They'd be, they'd be, worship, they'd be tolerated. Well, in 380 A.D., one of his uh, successors to the throne, Emperor Theodosius I, he issued the Edict of Thessalonica, making Christianity the state religion of Rome. You know, God never intended the church to rule on earth until the millennium when we would reign with him. He never intended the church to rule. And yet... Now, the church was given, through this edict, the church was given power on earth. And starting with Constantine, that pagan worship of ancient Babylon with its priesthoods and practices, it was incorporated into the church. But the names were changed. Ishtar became Easter. Bunnies and colored eggs, you know, the things that that we associate with Easter, or at least secularly with Easter, it has Babylonian origin. Same with the hot cross buns. Babylonian origin. Christmas, the celebration. We, we know it as a celebration of Christ's birth, but it was actually the celebration of Tammuz. Burning the Yule log was commemorating the death of Tammuz. Decorating an evergreen tree was commemorating Tammuz's miraculous res- resurrection. The mistletoe even has its source in Babylonian religion. Halloween, Lent, all those things are Babylonian. The color scarlet, the hats that the popes and the the priests wear, the the Pontifus Maximus himself, that is all Babylonian in origin. The worship of the Sacred Heart has its origin in Babylon. Praying the rosary was something in Babylonian uh, religion. Even the sign of the cross, because... The original form of the Babylonian letter T, the letter for the name for Tammuz, T was the was the Tau, um, and uh, it was the initial of Tammuz, and so putting that T on you was referring it was the sign of Tammuz, and so we see all this stuff, and and you go, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I, I want to say something right now. This is not bash Catholic Catholic Sunday, okay? So I didn't check my calendars, like okay, bash um, again. There are born-again believers of Jesus Christ in the Catholic Church. I've, I've met many of them. But not all Catholics are born again. Just as there are born-again believers in Jesus Christ in Protestant churches, but not all Protestants are born again. But you can't ignore the fact. The fact is, throughout history, spiritual Babylon, it migrated to wherever the money and the power was in the world. And history shows it went from pagan Rome to papal Rome. Like pagan Rome martyred the true believers in Jesus Christ, papal Rome 
also martyred the true believers in Jesus Christ. And so John sees this woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Not just guilty of bloodshed, but drunk with bloodshed. We, we, we'd almost say she was getting high off of it, or you know, she was really getting into it, and it was her thing, whatever you want to call it. And historically, the Inquisition, the Crusades, it wasn't simple martyrdom, but they perfected methods of torture of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so, John had witnessed martyrdom by pagan Rome in his day, so that wouldn't have caused him to marvel. What caused him to marvel was that there was an institution that called itself Christian that was martyring the saints. And that's what caused him to marvel. Verse 7. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh and is going to perdition. Whew, aren't you glad that cleared it up? <laughs> it's like, the angel's like, you don't understand? Let me explain it to you. I can see John go, ah, ah, makes sense now. <laughs> well, we know, we can, we can look at this. We know a few things, okay? We know the beast that this harlot is riding on. It has seven heads and ten horns. Right away, we hearken back to Revelation chapter 13. That was the exact description of the Antichrist. So we know that the beast is the Antichrist. And then he says, um, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Again, we can go back to Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. John has a vision of the Antichrist, the beast, and he says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The fact that he was, I think is referring to the birth and, the, and coming on the scene of the Antichrist. The fact that he is not means it's referring back to that mortal wound that he received. Either, either uh, he actually died or he appeared to die. We don't really know for sure. And he will ascend from the bottomless pit. So after he's mortally wounded he, and he comes back to life or, or deceptively comes back to life, it's not going to be just the Antichrist back to life. And he's not just going to be possessed by a demon. He's going to be possessed by the devil himself at this point. Satan himself will possess him. The angel says the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And right away people go, well, we know that's Rome because Rome is the city that sits on seven hills. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Although it is interesting that he didn't use the Greek word for hills. There's another Greek word that means hills. Uh, and, and Rome isn't on mountains. Rome's on hills. So uh, he could have said hills instead of mountains. But... Here's an interesting thing. In Daniel chapter 2, and you don't need to turn there because we're not going to look at the verses there, but in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel has a vision of all the coming world empires. 
and at one point he sees this 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 great image and it's it's all these succeeding empires on earth and then there's this this stone that strikes the image and and crushes the image and it says the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth and that mountain it's speaking of Christ's kingdom so Christ's kingdom was referred to a mountain there in Jeremiah 51 verse 25 this is a prophecy against Babylon and the Lord says to, through Jeremiah, he says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. So, you know, we can think of it as, as literal mountains. So if we think, oh, it's, it must be Rome because it's, you know, on literal seven hills and stuff. But mountains in scripture can also be emblematic of kingdoms and governments. I guess that's my point here. Verse 10, it says, There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. You know, I've got this, uh, I use eSword, give my secrets out, but I I use eSword almost exclusively for studying scriptures. If you ever want to get a good uh, Bible study software, it's free. The, The initial stuff's free, and it's a ton of stuff, and it's like having a library of Bible study stuff right on right on your little computer or whatever or phone or whatever. So I use eSword and one of the one of the tools I use is Robertson's Word Pictures. So sometimes when I come to a New Testament word or a verse, I'm not really sure. I like going to Robertson's Word Pictures and Vincent's uh, uh, Word Studies, I think it's called. Anyways, I went to Vincent's. There's nothing there. I went to Robertson's Word Pictures. I was like, okay, they're, they're going to help me. It's a great big help. It says, the identification of these seven kings is one of the puzzles of the book. That's all it says. I'm like, oh, great. A lot of help you guys are. Thanks. And it's funny because I've listened to different, I'm like, well, I've got to figure out what people are saying. So I've listened to different teachings and, boy, I tell you, you could get like, you could listen to five teachings and have six different opinions. It's, it's amazing. Um, so I'm going to just tell you what I think. And I'm not a biblical scholar but I'm going to tell you what I think. I think the mountains are emblematic of kingdoms. I really do. And I think these seven kings are also emblematic of the seven kingdoms or the seven world empires of world history. So when he says five have fallen, we know Egypt was the first world empire followed by Assyria and then Babylon and then the Medo-Persians and then Greece. And at the time of John's writings, all of those had fallen at that point. And then he says, one is. Well, that would have been the Roman Empire that John was, you know, under or in, you know, involved with. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. That short time, I believe, is three and a half years to be precise. And what this is referring to is, I, I believe, a revived Roman Empire, a one world government. Then he goes on and says, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seventh. And is going to perdition. And here again, here's what I think. The Antichrist is going to rise to power with and be part of that seventh world empire, the revived Roman Empire. But after three and a half years, he's going to declare that he is God and he's going to demand that the world worships him alone and he will be that eighth empire. Again, I'm not a scholar, but that's the way I look at this. Verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with a beast. 
These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. The ten nations of the revived Roman Empire are going to give their power and authority to the Antichrist. And I believe it's going to be some form, some future form of the European Union. Maybe not exactly the way it is right now, but some form of it. The European Union actually started out as the EEC, European Economic Community, uh, in 1957 by the Treaty of Rome. There were five, I think it's five or six nations that signed this treaty. It was Belgium, France, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and West Germany. It proposed to create a single market for goods, labor, services, and capital across the EEC's member states. It also proposed the creation of a common agriculture policy, a common transport policy, and a European social fund, and established the European Commission. That was the start of EEC. And, of course, it's now it's been kind of melded into the EU as we know it today. What's fascinating is some of the EU coinage has a woman riding a beast. Well, the beast is a bull, but it's, it's a beast. You know, we call a bull a beast. Very fascinating. Well, I think the future form of the EU is probably going to be made up of, go with ten nations. It may not be ten nations. It may be ten districts or groups of nations that have you know, banded together. Um, one of the things that's fascinating, I think, and maybe for some of us is depressing, but in another sense, we know that Jesus is returning soon. You know, our country was well on its way to surrendering its sovereignty to the United Nations over the last several decades. You've probably seen it, right? I'm sure you did. You know, wanting our military to wear the the UN uniforms and all that stuff. Um, But there was a wrench that was thrown into the gears of globalism, (laughs) and that happened November 8, 2016, with the election of Donald Trump. He, he, the globalists were like, what? <laughs> what just happened? Because everything was going so smoothly and it was, we were just like, we were marching like lemmings to the sea of globalism. And then for some reason, God allowed, God raised up this man to throw a wrench in there. I, I honestly don't know how it's all going to fit in with, with future, but here's the question that maybe I think this passage, the scripture that we're looking at, uh, maybe helps answer. The question is, how does spiritual Babylon fit in with all of this? Because next week we'll look at commercial Babylon. How does spiritual Babylon fit in with all this? Listen, a one-world government can only come to fruition with a one-world religion. That's the only way it's going to happen. And so that's the goal of spiritual Babylon, is to unite the world's religions there's, there's a move going on to, to bring everything together. Just last week, I read an article. It says, Pope Francis told a Buddhist delegation from Thailand Wednesday that his desire was for Buddhists and Catholics to grow ever closer to each other. And I'm quoting from his article. It says, It is my heartfelt wish that Buddhists and Catholics will grow increasingly closer, Francis said. Advance in knowledge of one another, and in esteem for their respective spiritual traditions, and offer the world a witness to the values of justice, peace, and the defense of human dignity. You know, that sounds okay. We should respect other people's rights to be wrong and, and worship the gods that they want. You know, we're not, we're not chopping people's heads off if they're not Christians. It's okay. It sounds great. But here's it goes a little deeper. In 1994, 
St. John Paul II offered an extensive reflection on the relationship between Christianity and Buddhism in his book-length interview, Crossing the Threshold of Hope. John Paul recalled the ancient conviction, long rooted in the Christian tradition of the existence of the so-called semina verbi, or semina verbi. Uh, It means the seeds of the word, capital word, present in all religions. says, in the light of this conviction, the church seeks to identify the semina verbi present in the great traditions of the Far East in order to trace a common path against the backdrop of the needs of the contemporary world, he said. I I was kind of digging into this. It kind of piqued my curiosity. So I was looking into this crossing the threshold of hope. You can find it online. And basically what it's saying is all religions have a seed of truth of, reaching, of, of trying to reach God. And so why don't we pull all, why don't we just you know, agree to disagree on some things, but let's, let's just kind of come together on what we can all agree on, that there's truth in every religion. So in a real sense, the spiritual tower of Babylon is being rebuilt today, brick by brick, in our generation. The problem right now, though, is those pesky, narrow-minded, fundamental believers that believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father through Jesus Christ. But you see, here's the issue. By this time, those true, pesky, fundamentalist believers will be in heaven with Jesus because the church will be raptured at this point. And so the world, even now we're seeing the seeds of, of this globalism, of this one-world religion, but once you and I are out of here, it's going to accelerate because there's not going to be anything to stop it. Verse 17, or 14, excuse me. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. You know, that's you right there. That's you. Verse 14. You're called, you're chosen, and you're faithful. Why do I say that? Because when these nations and the Antichrist make war with the Lamb and the Lamb overcomes him, we're going to be with him. We're going to be following behind him. The church will be coming with him. And so that's speaking about you and I. And isn't that encouraging? You know, you get in the midst of all this darkness and gloom and doom and stuff, and and John has to interject this, man. Hey, it's going to be okay. The Lamb's going to overcome him. And you and I were called, were chosen, and were faithful. By the way, being faithful, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's not you and me. I'm not faithful. It's the, it's the Holy Spirit doing that work in us. Verse 15. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So in John's vision, this great harlot was riding the beast. And it would appear because she's riding the beast, that she's in control, she's calling the shots. I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's portraying. And for the first three and a half years, she will, or at least she'll think 
She's calling the shots. One thing I mentioned last Sunday, during the Great Tribulation, treachery is going to abound. I mentioned it in the context of, you know, the, the Battle of Armageddon. Initially, it's going to be all these different armies coming against the Antichrist and go, wait, I thought he was a world ruler and everybody's worshiping him. Yeah, but treachery will still be, treachery will still be, you know, people will still be treacherous during the Great Tribulation. And in this case, treachery will abound in this situation. Because as soon as the Antichrist's power and position is established, he's no longer going to need the harlot. Because he wants to be worshipped above everything. But during the beginning of the tribulation, this is his vehicle to getting to that place. And you know, we've seen it in you know, politicians and you know, we've we've seen people cozy up to you know the the moral majority, or the you know the the, the people, they they you, especially around election years, everybody's going to church. You see them in churches being interviewed by Rick Warren and all these different people and stuff. And it sounds you go, wow, they're really Christians. Well, and you know some of them are. I'm not saying none of them are, but some of them are. But so often it's just it's just a vehicle. It's a tool to get votes. And it appears that this is the exact same thing the Antichrist is going to be doing. He's going to be part of the seventh. This one world, this this next empire, it's going to be his vehicle to get to where he's at. But once he's established, he doesn't need that anymore. He's going to declare himself to be God. Verses 16 and 17 also seems to allude back to Daniel 11. And I'm just going to read this to you. Daniel 11, verses 36 and 38. This is speaking of the Antichrist. It says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God. For he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Listening to this description of the Antichrist in Daniel 11, this guy, there's one thing that he's in love with and that is pure raw power that's all it is that's all he cares about verse 18 and the woman you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth in john's day of course that was pagan rome in our day i think it's the confusion of man-centered dead spiritually idolatrous religion you know, we just had that school shooting, right? Another one occurred. In fact, I think two of them occurred this past week. And, and uh, you know, everybody's, you know, if you're on the left side, you want to take away the guns because that'll take care of it. If you're on the right side, you want to keep the guns, but you want to arm the school. I mean, there's so many different, so many different uh, solutions that people are, are throwing out there. But, you know, that's really, in my opinion, it's putting a Band-Aid on the whole issue. The whole issue is what's causing people to shoot, kill people like that. And, and, you know, I mean, I grew up with guns. I didn't have any myself until I was in the military. But, I mean, I grew up around guns. And, you know, uh, it's not like we have more than we have now. And, and yet, in my day, people weren't going around to school shooting people. What, what happened? Well, I think what happened is the confusion, the spiritual confusion that exists in the world. People don't know the truth. Now it's, it, your, it, truth is all subjective now. 
and, and your truth might not be my truth and 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 if there's no if there's no you know single absolute truth anything goes well this is confusing these kids and i think that's part of the problem i in fact i think that's the root problem is spiritual confusion i like what paul writes i'm going to close with this he writes to the corinthians in second corinthians 11 verses 1 through 4 Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest how, uh, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You know, as going through, this is the destruction. God, God has prophesied the destruction of Babylon. Babylon's existed until we, this point here, Revelation 17 and 18. And this is, God puts it in the heart of the Antichrist and those ten nations to destroy the spiritual part, the great harlot. That's her destruction. But I think, so I'm looking at that and I'm going, well, how do I pull out an application out of this? Because, you know, hey, we're going to be in heaven. <laughs> the church is going to be raptured. So what's the application? And, and I would say, if anything, the application is we need to keep our faith simple in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a lot of confusing messages out there. And I think our youth are, are getting a lot of confusing messages. And, and, and we need to know what we believe. We need to understand. Is there a scriptural basis? You know, if, you're, if you've been raised in Catholicism, and maybe, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's possible I, I may have offended somebody with some of the stuff I brought up. But, but, you know, I've talked to people that are, they just, this is what the church does, and I believe it, and, you know, because the church says it. Well, why? Where is it in the Bible? Where, how do you find it? And, and there are a lot of people, they, they don't have an answer. I don't know. That's just what, and they don't want to discuss it. And I think, wow, you're, you're basing your, your eternal destiny on what somebody else says? That's scary. We need to know what we believe. And, and you know, it's so simple. We don't need to be confused. It's faith in Christ Jesus and Christ alone. So if I could have the worship team coming up, and uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning, Lord, that we would just uh, stay simply in love with you, and that, Lord, our, our faith would be just simply grounded in the words of Scripture, not in man's tradition, and not in, uh, Lord, in... in popular opinion, popular values, world's values. Lord, we know that spiritual Babylon is alive and well right now and, and actually gaining more and more power and more uh, the, her, her voice is growing larger and, or louder and louder. Lord, I pray that we as believers would not uh, fall for the lies and the deception and the seduction of spiritual idolatry. And so, Lord, I pray you just help us to stay centered in our relationship with you. So we thank you for this morning, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.